Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. Man, we're packing them in here today. We got, we got folks up in the choir loft. We got the, the box seats are taken. Hello, choir loft people. You paid extra for those seats. Did you see the blessed signs on the doors when you came in? It's Donut Sunday, right? Parents, you can bribe your kids for a little bit of good behavior, right? If you get a donut, right? That kind of thing. All right, let's get into it. So uh, earlier this week while I was praying through the readings, I'll, get to, I'll explain why in a second, but a movie came to my mind. It's one of my favorite movies. It's a, it's a Christopher Nolan film. It's The Prestige. It came out in 2006. Anybody here seen The Prestige? Okay, more people in this mass than the previous masses. You guys are my people. Okay, so if you haven't seen The Prestige, major spoiler alerts coming right at you right now. But it came out in 2006, so like, this is on you, all right? So The Prestige, it's, it's a brilliant movie. One of the most, I mean, one of the incredible, brilliant parts of the movie is that you realize, okay, huge spoiler, coming right now. You realize at the end of the movie that the scenes that you saw at the very beginning of the film, as the film opens up, the scenes that you saw, the images that he's putting on this screen, it's the answer to the puzzle that the whole movie is playing out, Right? In other words, Christopher Nolan, he shows you how the story ends before he gets into it. You see the end at the beginning, and it's just fascinating. You just don't realize it. It's just so, there's still enough veil there. You can still enjoy the movie. And I was thinking about that. I, was, I, I want to do a little Christopher Nolan prestige move here this morning for this homily by telling you at the outset kind of the ending. I want to tell you the punchline to the homily first, how I want, how I want, to, uh, how I want to end this, how I want what I want you to walk away with, and it's this, it's this idea, if you can hold this in your mind, that the, the first reading that we heard from Mass this weekend, from the book of Proverbs, this whole business of the, the worthy and noble good wife, right, to whom her husband entrusts his heart, this incredible beauty, this, this reality, right, this relationship, all of that, that first reading, it is, if you will, the interpretive key, it's the lens to properly understand the gospel that we just heard. So the first reading, Proverbs, is really the interpretive lens to understand the gospel, the parable of the master who entrusts this vast treasure to his servants. The spousal mystery, this marital reality that we see on display in the first reading, it is, it's what enables us, it's what unlocks the gospel at the depths. So that's, the, that's how this is ending, right? That's the... That's the that's the spoiler. All right, so now let me get a little running start into, into all of that, beginning with my, my great hero, Pope St. John Paul II. Pope St. John Paul II, he was elected to the papacy in 1978, and for the first, essentially, the first five years of his pontificate, the first major teaching effort that he did was every Wednesday for the general audiences, he would get up on the balcony of um, his papal apartment, and he would teach the world for uninterrupted basically uninterrupted for five years. There was a little brief period of time where he was, you know, almost assassinated. He took a little time off there to rest. Well-deserved. But for five years, he taught the world about the beauty of God's plan for our humanity, 
right? God's plan for our masculinity and femininity, the plan that God has for our sexuality and marriage and family and all of these things. For the first five years, this is what he dove into, unpacking the scriptures, Genesis, Ephesians, all of the prophets going into all of this. It was this massive Bible study, essentially, where he's telling the world, this is what it means to be human. And one of the key texts for John Paul II in this collection of teachings that's come to be known as the theology of the body. One of the key texts for the theology of the body is St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, especially chapter 5, right? So Paul, he's writing to the Ephesians, and he, he says this to them. He quotes Genesis. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's Genesis, right? That's, that's Genesis right there. And then Paul adds this, right? Paul, who is a Pharisee, a scholar of the law, who understands the scriptures probably better than anybody at his time, Paul adds this as he's meditated upon this and the revelation of Jesus. Paul adds, This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. This whole reality of marriage, of husband and wife, of the two cleaving to each other in the one flesh union that bears forth life, Paul says that is the musterion mega, the great mystery. He says, but that reality points to Christ and his church. It's unveiled by Christ and his church. It's connected to Christ and the church. This is what Paul is saying. It's as if Paul has married these two marriages, the marriage in the beginning of Adam and Eve and the marriage of Christ to the church. I'll get to that in a second. So St. John Paul II, he's reflecting on all of this, and he says this. St. Paul's magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery in Ephesians 5, this appears as the compendium or summa in some sense of the teaching about God and man which was brought to fulfillment by Christ. Here what St. John Paul II is saying that Ephesians 5, what Paul is getting at is a summa, a summary, a distillation of everything that God wanted to tell us. JP2 goes on. The mystery spoken of in Ephesians 5 is great indeed. As God's salvific plan for humanity, that mystery is, hold on to your hats, that mystery is, in some sense, the central mystery, the central theme of the whole of Revelation, its central reality. It is what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind in his word, JP2, here, he's making this huge claim. Think, he's saying, like, okay, the entirety of Revelation, picture, picture your Bible, right? The, your family Bible that sits on the coffee table or your Bible that you pray with every morning. That whole honking thing, he's saying, you can distill it down to this essential message that St. Paul unpacks as the great mystery that, like, what is it that God wishes to transmit to mankind? What is it that he wants to communicate to us? That he wants union with us. He wants union with us. He wants a spousal type relationship that the least inadequate image to describe how he wants his relationship with us. It's that of marital love. You can put it this way. That God wants to marry us. He wants union with us. Like one of my favorite paragraphs of the, the entire catechism. Paragraph 221 says this. Quoting John the Evangelist. The Catechism says, St. John goes even further when he affirms that God is love. God's very being is love. And by sending his, his Son and the Spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. 
I love that line so much. He spilled the beans. He's revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. That through the revelation of Jesus Christ, by God sending his Son and then the Son sending the Spirit, God has revealed his inner nature, what he is, this eternal exchange of love. And then the Catechism has the audacity to add this word, and. Like, God is this infinite exchange of love and bliss and glory, and. And we are destined to be drawn up into this very dance of beauty and bliss. That that's where this is headed. That's where this is headed. This is better than donuts, okay? I'm telling you, there's some good jelly filled down there. But this is better than donuts. This is better than donuts. This is the best news. And here's the thing. If this shocks you, if this sounds like a bit much, I would just ask you to consider this. Like, how much did you suppose that the God of the universe, the God who is infinite love, how much did you suppose he loved you? What did you suppose his intentions were for you? Did you suppose that he just was interested in tolerating you? Like you're just going to be a member of the heavenly HOA that he just kind of deals with? No, he, he loves you. He's interested in you. Right? God's plan, in St. Paul, he, he, he calls it God's plan of loving goodness. This plan of God for us and for you, it's beyond our ima wildest imaginings that he doesn't just like you, he, he loves you. This, this great mystery that Paul speaks about, this is why peppered throughout the entirety of the Bible, you have all of this marital spousal imagery because like God the Holy Spirit, from the beginning of the revelation of the scriptures, it's as if God has been whispering to the sacred authors it's like marriage. It's deeper than you could imagine. This is something of what it's like. Like this marital reality that we see, especially in this reading from Proverbs, it, it points to, it, it prefigures the fulfillment of Christ and his love for his bride, which is the church. The church, the church who is personified in the individual person of Mary. Mary herself is the personal face of the church. She is the concretization, the personal face of the church. She is the bride. The church has always taught this. The catechism teaches, the church fathers have taught that, yes, in the order of nature, Mary is his mother, always. But in the order of grace, she is the mystical bride. That's who she is. That's who she is. Look, I know I'm throwing a lot of theology at this morning, but I keep figuring, you've got donuts coming. You're going to be okay, right? Just stay with me. The water is very, it's, it's very good over here, right? All right, so with all of that in mind, right, this stuff from Proverbs in mind, let's go back to this first reading. But as you listen to this, I want you to imagine God gazing upon the Blessed Mother in his, in like, in the divine mind. He's got one eye on the Blessed Mother, and he's got another I inspiring the author of Proverbs, right? So he's got one eye on the Blessed Mother as he's inspiring the author to Proverbs writing this. When one finds a worthy wife, her value is far beyond pearls. Her husband, entrusting his heart to her, has an unfailing prize. She brings him good and not evil all the days of her life. 
Let me hold up one more reading from the Old Testament, a text from Isaiah, right? The prophet Isaiah. It's a reading that we're going to hear throughout Advent. Again, hold up, in your, hold up in your mind's eye the image of Mary, right? God the Father gazing upon Mary in the divine mind at the same time as he's inspiring Isaiah with these words. As a young man marries a virgin, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Like, friends, like, is that not what happened at the Annunciation? Like, heaven comes and bends the knee in the person of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Heaven bends the knee before this worthy maiden from Nazareth, whose value is far beyond all treasure and all pearls. Like, did God not entrust his heart to her? As a husband to his wife, like, again, your builder shall marry you. Your creator shall marry you. Who is that fulfilled in? Our Lady. Our Lady. Like, is Jesus not the Father's heart given to humanity? Was she not the virginal bride who received the treasure that he is, and then she gave him forth, and that treasure is multiplied into the world? Like, that's... That's exactly who she is. And that's exactly what is happening in these mysteries. Like, that's exactly what this is. But the question, right, the question is, what does that have to do with the gospel that we just heard? Right, because isn't this gospel about the master and the talents and the treasure? Isn't that just simply about an exhortation to not waste our talents that God gives us? Okay, sure, on one level, fine. Yes, that's true. But it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. There's always more. Now look, it, it clicks into place. What I'm trying to get at, it clicks into place when you, when you see that the husband who entrusts his heart to his bride in the first reading is prefiguring the man in the gospel who went on a journey and beforehand called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. It's the same word. It's the same idea. Like what's so interesting about the parable that Jesus gives, the oddity of the parable is that like the man who's entrusting these possessions to his servants, he, it's, he's not just simply saying, hey guys, would you mind just watching my stuff? I'm, going, I'm just going on a quick trip. I'll be back in a little bit. He's not just asking them to watch his stuff. He's entrusting to them like the monetary value. A talent in, in the biblical world was is like 25 years worth of wages. And he's just handing out talents left and right. Here's five talents, here's 10 talents. Like, he's just, here's a million dollars, here's 10 million dollars. Just like, no big deal. Like, the point is, he's giving them an exorbitant treasure. Something beyond our imaginings. Something extraordinary. He's placing in their hands, he's entrusting to their, their care what is most precious in value to him. And is that not... Is that not what God the Father did in the incarnation by sending the Son? Did not the Father say, I'm entrusting to you. I'm bestowing upon you what is most precious to me. My heart, my Son, my very self. Like, and is that not what happens at every single Mass? Like the heavenly bridegroom, who is Jesus. Jesus gazes upon his bride, the church, with overwhelming love. He gazes upon you with this desire to entrust his heart to us. Like that's what Holy Communion is. 
Like those servants that we just heard about in the gospel, what they received pales in comparison to the treasure that's just going to be given to you. All of heaven is bankrupted at every single mass and entrusted to you. The entirety of heaven is given to you in just a moment. Because just like the husband in Proverbs entrusts his heart to his bride, just like the master entrusts his treasure to the servants, the bridegroom entrusts his heart to us in the Eucharist in the hope, in the hope that his self-gift, like this self-offering of his, would find fertile soil in our humanity, that his gift of his very self would be received and conceived and would gestate in the womb of our hearts, that divine life would grow in us, that we would multiply the gift that's been given to us in the world, so that when we die and we stand before him, he looks upon us and calls us to himself, well done, my good and faithful servant. Like you did what you were supposed to do. You opened, you received. You bore me into the world. And, and look, here's, I'm going to end with this. Like I was asking the Lord, okay, Lord, this, these beautiful connections, this beautiful theology, this is all well and good, but like what's, what's the practical takeaway? Is there like a practical nugget you want us to have? And, and so often, just to be totally transparent and honest, the, the Lord so often convinces me that the most practical thing he wants us to experience is being overwhelmed. Like all of this, what I'm saying is true. Like, he, practically speaking, he wants you to hear and grasp that, that this God of ours, this God who is powerful beyond imagining, unlimited in every way, the God whom the heavens could not contain, the God who, as the author of Genesis says, made the sun, made the moon, and then, like, just made the gajillion, gajillion stars as an afterthought. Like, that God who needs nothing, who's beholden to nothing, that God reveals himself, he comes to you. He entrusts himself to you and to me in this act of utter supreme vulnerability. Like this is, this is what he's doing. The mass is what he is doing. What he's doing is he's lowering himself. He's taking the risk. Like he's deciding, I'm as vulnerable as I was in that manger, as vulnerable as I was upon the cross, I will be as vulnerable again upon this altar to be given to you. He holds back nothing, the mass, the gift of the Eucharist. It would not happen if God did not take the first step in vulnerability. Like his entrustment of his heart. The, the mass is the most vulnerable thing that God could do. Like he comes forward and strips himself bare and offers his heart to us. And the question, like the only question that ever really ultimately matters at the end of the day is what will we as the bride do? Like how will we reciprocate? When we lift up our hearts, what will that mean actually for us subjectively, personally? Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. And, like. What is the appropriate response to a God who bankrupts heaven every single day to give you his heart? What is the appropriate response? Okay, 
I'll give you everything back. May that be the response of the bride today. Amen.